All right. Well, welcome to Heartland History, the official podcast of the Midwestern History Association. I am Camden Bird, an assistant professor of history at Eastern Illinois University, and I am joined by my friend, the affable, <laughs> the genius, Ramya. How are you doing today? Um, it's cold, gray. It's a brilliant Michigan day. Um, and I'm still at Grand Valley State, uh, an assistant professor of interdisciplinary studies. You are you are hitting peak academic weather there in West Michigan. Yes, it's it's the it's the hunker down. Don't worry, there's nothing going on outside. You can read and write time. Yes, but I live with a four and a half year old who has the attention span of a gnat. So no, that is that just means there's more of oh my god, it's cold. You're not going anywhere. You're so boring. Yes. So, All right. So maybe maybe some sledding in there every once in a while. Oh, I feel not. like with a four-year-old, you really can like just wear them out by having them get in and out of snow attire. This is true, but I'm also brown, so I don't want to go out in the snow. <laughs> well, uh, we have an episode here. We met with uh, Max Frazier, who's an assistant professor of history at the University of Miami, where he teaches classes on 20th century American labor, cultural and political history. His writing has appeared in a variety of both academic and popular venues, including The Atlantic, The Nation and Descent. He worked as a journalist before beginning his training as a historian and received his PhD from Yale in 2017. Uh, We talked to him about his uh, recent book, Hillbilly Highway, The Trans-Appalachian Migration and the Making of a White Working Class, which was recently published by Princeton University Press. Ramya, anything you took away from uh, the text or the conversation that you would think our listeners should pay attention to or just something you took away? I think for me, what I really appreciated was the attention to landscape and space. Mm -hmm. Um, And this could just be the supposed environmental historian in me. But I really appreciate the the sort of richness with which he painted, you know, these these highways and the the hills. And maybe it's just because I live in the Midwest and sometimes I forget about texture and landscape, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But the way he brings in the importance of place and also the sort of, uh, we talk about this in the the pod a little about these migrations, right? And, you know, what people bring these larger ideas of development and how seasonal migration sort of feeds into that or doesn't. Yeah, the conversation of migration really complicates, I think, and and, and makes it more interesting to think about regionality and more broadly, mm-hmm. right? like a lot of these communities of, you know, these trans-Appalachian migrants, if, you know, we consider their 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 situation in the Midwest seriously and, and mm-hmm. with that, right, it, it does challenge our assumption of, of who is a Midwesterner exactly. or the popular notion of who is a Midwesterner, right? Exactly. And and also like the, the ways in which place and space, right, are mm-hmm. remembered and internalized in how they associate with these new places that they live in. Um, yes. I mean, we had a great conversation about music, which really, you know, mm-hmm. I got to enjoy trying to uh, splice in some some songs in here, too. So I do hope the listeners appreciate my editorial um, adventures. Anything, any sort of housekeeping items that we should be talking about? Well, I believe there's a regional conference that happens in Grand Rapids every summer. And <laughs> yeah, heard of it, yes. It's, it's a place called the Midwestern History Association Annual Conference um, that is up in Grand Rapids. Why am I saying up? It's actually down for me. Um, but down in Grand Rapids in uh, May 2024 from the, on the 30th and 31st, um, I believe the call for proposals is open and will be open until January. So hunker down and write for those of you who can. Yes. Um, 
write a proposal, write a paper, write a book, write mine if you want. Um, (laughs) Rami and I will be delighted to see you there uh, in May. Yes. And this time I promise that we can actually go out for a beer. I like this. I like this. I like this guarantee that you're giving people. For sure. Why not? All right. Well, um, I think that's it. Should Should we get into it? Yes, please. Let's go. Well, uh, Max, welcome to Heartland History. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, before we jump into the core of the book, uh, our listeners might be interested to hear the origins of this project. What led you uh, to research and write about the Hillbilly Highway? Well, you know, it's a funny uh, question. Before I began my graduate training, uh, I worked for a while in journalism, and then I have continued to dabble in journalism, I guess, since... Um, beginning my life as an academic. And it was actually while reporting an article after my first year in the summer, after my first year of graduate school, um, that I um, kind of encountered the Hillbilly Highway uh, for the first time in my own sort of immediate uh, experience. Um, I was familiar with the old uh, Steve Earle song, Hillbilly Highway, but um, it was while I was reporting an article that uh, took me through the Midwest and the Upper South. This was an article I was writing for Descent Magazine, sort of focused on working class life uh, in the country uh, in the aftermath of the Great Recession during the kind of high period of the age of austerity that followed that economic catastrophe. And I was in Muncie um, and I uh, kept running into people, talking to people, particularly on the white working class South side of Muncie, once the center of industry in Muncie, now at that point heavily deindustrialized and, and really economically distressed. Uh, and a lot of the people I spoke to, it was clear, had either personal or familial connections uh, to the South. And I'm talking about white people. And um, I was struck by that. It was not really, it was, it was, it clearly became so prevalent um, that it kept reappearing in my conversations with people. And it didn't match up with a kind of historical experience or historical event that I was familiar with in the way that, you know, uh, we're all familiar, whether we're professional historians or not, with the great migration of black Southerners, right, really transforming um, the industrial Midwest during this period, this period um, or the or the 20th century. So uh, I kind of was, I was curious. I asked more people started talking to me using that phrase, hillbilly highway. Oh yeah. My, my grandparents or my father or, or me, uh, we took the hillbilly highway North. It was clear. Everybody, many people came not just from the South broadly, but from Tennessee and, mm. and more I asked, not just Tennessee, but East Tennessee and not just East Tennessee, but really like a shockingly high percentage of people that I was talking to came from this tiny rural hamlet in Fentress County, Tennessee, called Jamestown, or from the immediate environs thereof, a completely, um, you know, very small rural area, maybe a thousand people at the most today. So there's this real dense chain migration, really, that had brought people from the South generally, but even in a very narrow way from this particular place up to, up to Muncie. I was fascinated by it. It was not the point of the article that I was writing in any way. It gets a passing mention in that article when I published it, but it, it, um, 
it stuck with me and I, I sort of made it into my dissertation and then into this book, um, uh, you know, a dozen years later or so. What's uh, really compelling in your book is, you know, you historicize a unique class of an, of American worker. Um, maybe, you know, you could you provide some broader context uh, about who these workers are from Appalachia? Um, what are some of the key historic, economic and political conditions that give rise to the migrant white working class throughout the 20th century, but perhaps more specifically in the post-war decades? Well, in the book, I, I, I describe this migrant working class as um, a kind of, uh, you know, maybe it's best to think of them as a sort of dispossessed rural proletariat um, that has been uh, over um, a series of decades, beginning in the late 19th century, increasingly separated from traditional livelihoods tied to the land, um, you know, in, in a variety of different kinds of ways, a kind of agrarian, self-sustaining, working, poor population, but one that had endured in Upper South broadly for some period of time. And then as industrialization begins to transform that region, you know, particularly around the sort of extractive industries, but also uh, timbering, the rise of the mill economy, things like that, which really explodes in the decades after uh, the turn of the century, more and more people of that demographic are sort of thrust into the growing industrial economy of the Upper South. And, and then before long sort of thrust out of it as the mining economy booms and busts, increases the capital intensivity of that labor and produces its own sort of labor surplus. And so this sort of dislocated, increasingly landless, increasingly precarious rural population uh, eventually enters this much larger migratory labor stream that and that orients itself towards the industrial Midwest, where there is, relatively speaking, to the industrial economy of the Upper South, a, an almost limitless demand for labor um, during the sort of heyday of the mid-20th century industrial economy. So though, you know, what the driving forces of that change are resource extractive industrialization, right, and the way land is taken out of agricultural use and put to a different kind of use in terms of its, you know, extracting its mineral reserves to be diverted into the industrial economy. Uh, it's driven by agricultural modernization programs, many of which are sponsored by the New Deal era government, uh, thinking about the TVA and the Civilian Conservation Corps and enterprises of this nature, which similarly sort of um, through, you know, making uh, southern agriculture, and particularly this uh, southern agriculture in these more marginal parts of the Upper South, uh, marginal terrains, agricultural terrains, more productive through the introduction of machinery, chemical technology, you know, irrigation networks of various kinds, diminishes the need for and demand for work in that economy, and so creates a labor surplus in that way. So, you know, all of these economic factors, they're, they're varied. They have different kinds of um, driving forces. They emerge or become uh, more ac acute or powerful at different moments. But in general, over the course of the first half of the 20th century, have a kind of overlapping and complementary effect of driving millions of poor 
rural white Southerners off of the land and into first a regional industrial economy within the South and then increasingly one outside of it. The migratory lives that they lead moving back and forth over generations between the the Midwestern industrial economy and, and their Southern rural places of origin also gives them a particularly kind of trans-regional trans character uh, that, that sort of defines their class experience and, and, and cultural identity in a variety of ways that, that I also try to unpack in the book. I, I, you know, as someone who is sort of aware of this history, I think we mentioned I, I'm from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where Ramya currently calls home. Yes. Uh, and I, my family has ties to this history of the Hill Bay Highway. Several of my childhood friends also have connections to this story. Um, though that being said, like I'm still blown away by some of the numbers you have here, right? Like nearly 60% of the population of Akron, Ohio by the middle of the 20th century uh, is from Appalachia or the broader South, right? And you know that like one contemporary right. observer jokes that Akron was quote, the capital of West Virginia um, intellectually, right? Like I think this demographic reality of the Midwest like really should compel scholars to think pretty seriously about like the contours and meanings of Midwest regionalism, right? Which is something that we've, we've been exploring in this podcast quite a bit. But as, you know, uh, um, as these migrant workers are moving into these urban areas, they're often met with, you know, confusion, anxiety. Um, they're, they're often fit into like a precarious position, right? Like bosses at the Goodyear factories are eager to recruit these workers because they consider them to be desperate and exploitable. But at the same time, labor organizers see them, uh, um, you know, with a little bit of skepticism and maybe even outright hostility, believing them to be, you know, this this lumpen proletariat, um, a group too demoralized and deferential to organize. I guess, you know, um, I mean, this is like you know, a couple chapters of your book, but, you know, for the sake of our listeners, what does it mean to be situated in this precarious position in the urban north? Uh, and what did that look like on the ground? You know, I think one of the things that, um, I think the appreciating the, the scale of this migration should correct in our understanding of the uh, white working classes of the Midwest is that this population of displaced rural Southerners who maintained intentionally very active ties, both um, literal ties or emotional, familial, uh, cultural ties to the rural South is a major part of, a larger part of the patchwork of uh, sort of white working class culture in the Midwest than we're, than we're used to thinking about it as, I think. Where historically I've seen the, the trans-Appalachian migration described in the literature, and there's a couple of books that that mm-hmm. some listeners might be familiar with that do a better job or do more than what I'm about to say. But the overwhelming majority, I think, describe the Appalachian migration as a sort of also there kind of complement to the predominant migration out of the South being the Black migration. And I don't mean to suggest that this migration was in any way more important or, or, or is in any way there's some competition between the two. But mm-hmm. The, the scale of the migration of white Southerners out of the Upper South was much more massive than, we've, than, than it has been treated or understood to be in our conventional historiography mm-hmm. of the Midwest. 
um, of the of the sort of industrial north, and particularly as we think about the kind of cultural and political composition of working class politics and, and identity in that region during the 20th century, and particularly after World War II. So I really am trying to suggest that um, not, you know, not that the um, all of the Midwestern white working class is defined by this migration, to be sure, no, right? My book is called or subtitled The Making of a White Working Class, but this significant subgroup or this subgroup of the white working class, the Midwest, is much more significant in size and, and scale and, and, in, and in various moments and in various locations throughout the period I write about has much more significant historical effect than I think that conventional treatment of, oh yeah, there was also some poor white Appalachians who were coming up at the same time as this major influx of black Southerners. So I do think it changes or should change the way we think about the sort of what makes up Midwest, you know, what, what are the composite parts of Midwestern regionalism um, mm-hmm. during these years? You know, although I don't, you know, in the end, I don't really think of myself primarily as a Midwestern historian. I do think that I, I do hope that that's something that Hillbilly Highway contributes to, you mm-hmm. know, the conversations that Midwestern historians are, are having. To, your, to, your, to the main thrust of your question about the liminal places that these workers found themselves, you know, I think one, one point that I try to emphasize throughout the book is that the Hillbilly Highway was for many migrants uh, along it, sort of equal parts, a, a story of mobility and marginalization. The mobility was real. In other words, to leave the economically distressed and increasingly impoverished Appalachian South or the Southern countryside more broadly during the 20th century to find work in the North was to automatically improve your earning capacity, your access to, you know, a a kind of modern consumer economy, uh, you know, the whole you know everything on offer in the in the affluent society that that just never took root in the in the rural South uh, during these years, uh, despite the sort of repeated efforts of the federal government to fully I- interpolate the rural South into the national into national markets and 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 modern consumer society. So uh, the, the 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 economic mobility that came with the migration for for many migrants was was real, um, and and there are you know, palpable and undeniable sort of demographic markers or, or, or you know, sociological, socioeconomic markers to indicate that o- over time. You know, at the same time, you know, these workers were introduced into in the industrial economies of the Midwest largely through the recruiting efforts of Midwestern manufacturers who in the years after World War I sent their labor agents into the South to recruit poor black and white Southerners because they thought of them as, you know, a docile, anti-union lump and proletariat, right? As, as, as you, as you, you, you know, describe or use the term before, um, and, um, believe wrongly as my book tries to demonstrate at some, at some length that they would be a kind of repository of, company loyalism of, of, you know, kind of cultural um, reliability in the contentious and conflictual work industrial workspace of the mid 20th century. And that initial idea that these poor white Southerners were a kind of, you know, 
exploitable lumpen proletariat would linger throughout the duration of the migration um, mm. and 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 make them a kind of and in and and in in very specific ways that I try to trace and mark throughout the book uh, a sort of working class other um, in the heart of this sort of midwestern industrial region uh, and cultural region I think you know for the for migrants themselves that experience was palpable and it was something that they carried with them throughout their experiences um, it was and this is something that really came out in the in the dozens of oral histories that I did for the book the way people described you know their feelings of both you know finding new homes but also being very aware of their outsider status in places like you know, Chicago and Detroit or Muncie, Indiana, and Dayton, Ohio, the way in which, you know, the term itself, hillbilly, was mobilized in much mm -hmm. more pejorative ways to identify them as other and outside and less than and, and uh, unassimilable in some way during these years. It was one of the factors which contributed to the overriding desire that many migrants felt throughout the 20th century to return home. Um, and the frequency of return at, at various moments and in various ways is one of the defining characteristics of this migration. It's one of the most important characteristics that distinguished it from the Black Great Migration, where you see much lower rates of return throughout the 20th century, really until the sort of 70s and 80s when you have the sort of great return migration. Mm. Uh, but white Southerners are going back home all the time for a variety of reasons, but many cases because they just feel alienated from and, and marginalized by the, the urban environments in which they've found themselves. And so um, they're finding mobility, but they're also encountering a kind of enduring marginalization, which, which again, you know, um, to get back to the question you were putting to me, Ramya, I think is one of the things that makes this class experience really distinctive in this moment in time, uh, particularly, you know, within the the category of the white working classes, right? In, in various ways, it's more suggestive of what workers of color and immigrant workers of various kinds experienced uh, during the mid 20th century than what we are used to thinking about the sort of normative experience of white working people during these years. Yeah, so like one of the things that struck me while you know, reading the book, but definitely when hearing you talk right now is that precarity um, remains the theme for these workers in the urban Midwest. And in particular, onlookers were confounded by the development of what were called hillbilly ghettos, areas of concentrated poverty that appeared in various cities in the period between 1945 and 1960. Um, so what were these communities? What did they look like? And what did older Midwesterners make of them? Yeah, I mean, this was one of the things that was most striking to me as I sort of got deeper and deeper into the research um, and maybe to a pair of Midwestern historians proper such as yourselves or, or you know the, the listeners here this will not come as a, as much of a surprise as it did to me but I often think of great works of Midwestern history like you know um, by Hirsch and Sugru and others about the post-war ghetto which are so um, which have, singled out the black ghetto and to some extent the brown ghetto as the defining and maybe the 
almost the singular manifestation of the post-war urban crisis and as it transformed the racial and economic landscapes of, of Midwestern cities, Detroit, Chicago, and these are some of the great works on that are, are focused on the, on the Midwest, right? And what was fascinating to me going back into the historical record was that there was this moment in the 50s and, and into the 1960s where contemporaries, city officials, journal, you know, journalists, uh, policy makers and professionals of various kinds, social service bureaucrats were talking in real time, not only about the, you know, the emerging challenges surrounding and problems of the black ghetto, uh, but also these, what they called in their language, hillbilly ghettos, right? These growing pockets of um, uh, poverty, of of, of of blighted communities and, and, and sort of uh, economically distressed neighborhoods in the heart of the inner city, which were composed not by newly arrived black Southerners uh, to the, you know, to the, the south side of Chicago or the, you know, the, uh, we, you know, the west side of Detroit or something, but but of white Southerners um, and um, these hillbilly migrants um, and, and the zones of concentrated poverty that many of them seem to be settling in in the urban Midwest became real preoccupations of those, you know, sort of Midwestern officials in the moment of the urban crisis sort of beginning and, and starting to take shape. The, the correction that I try to offer in the book is not to say that the you know, the Tom Segrew and others have mistaken the color of the post-war urban crisis in that, you know, this was so much about the rise of the emergence of the Black ghetto and, and the second ghetto as a creation of public policy during these years that was explicitly segregationist, that was a creation of all these discriminatory um, policies embedded in, in federal and local policy in various ways, but that for um, a period of time, these poor white migrants who I wrote about were settling in similar kinds of communities and suggesting similar kinds of um, problems to their urban neighbors. And those problems in the moment were often defined as much in terms of the language of race as they were in terms of the language of rurality and rural culture. And in the eyes of urban Midwesterners, the thing that made the hillbilly ghetto like the black ghetto and like the, you know, the Mexican ghetto and Puerto Rican ghetto, the other kinds of urban ghettos that people were sort of wringing their hands over at the time was that there was these sort of po this polyglot community of rural poor people who all were sort of coming to the city in search of work and, you know, bringing their impoverished rural cultures of poverty, essentially, with them and sort of failing to succeed in the city. And as they failed to succeed in the industrial city, creating this sort of set of problems for municipal um, governments and uh, civil service agencies of various kinds. I try to trace in the book the way in which the, in the moment, the preoccupation with the hillbilly ghetto was actually a real driving force of some of the early sort of liberal reform uh, initiatives aimed at trying to ameliorate some of the urban crisis and, and draw attention to rising forms of urban poverty and, and make sense of where they were coming from. Yeah. And so like through this examination of a migratory working class, you track a history of political transformations, right? Which, you know, both liberal and conservative, right? 
And so for mainstream liberal policymakers, they aren't quite sure what to make of the Appalachian white poverty in, in Midwestern cities. Um, you write, for a, for a time, an unusual combination of elite and condescension, political opportunism, and genuine compassion made newly formed communities of Southern white immigrants in the urban Midwest a unique object of focus for liberal policymakers and intellectuals. You go on to write the relative whiteness of hillbilly ghettos provided an important ideological cover at a critical juncture in the development of liberal social policy, a way of talking about urban poverty as a problem of culture without talking explicitly about the political, politically explosive issue of race. And I think you've alluded to some of this uh, in your response to the previous question. Um, but, you know, so more specifically, how did policymakers pathologize white urban poverty in the 1950s? And what does it tell us about the ways in which they discuss uh, broader urban crises in the 1960s? As these um, hillbilly ghettos proliferate across the region, and these are neighborhoods like, you know, Over the Rhine or Lower Price Hill in Cincinnati, Uptown in Chicago, Briggs in the Cass Corridor in Detroit, in smaller cities like in Muncie, neighborhoods like Shedtown or the east side of Dayton, east end of Dayton, these neighborhoods of, you know, sort of identifiably uh, Southern white migrants who are poor and who are uh, in which all the familiar symptoms of urban poverty at this time are manifest. Policymakers um, begin to put together a diagnosis of why it is these poor people are so poor. And in, amidst um, the, the plenty of post-war American society, right? This is the era of, you know, the trying to make sense of the, the other America, right? Why is it that this group, that these, these poor people are not getting ahead? And the explanations that they come to is that it is the rural cultural habits, patterns of behavior that they bring with them from the Appalachian South, um, from the Southern countryside, which just make them in every way ill-prepared to, um, you know, become good bourgeois subjects, effectively hardworking, you know, uh, factory workers who know to send their kids to school with a clean shirt on and get their immunizations and worship God in the right way and, and not, you know, drink and fight too much on the weekends and all the things that these poor hillbillies do, um, you know, and, and, uh, so that's, so, so, and there's a real sincere effort to try to understand and, and diagnose, explain that, those packages of behaviors. Of course, this is the 1950s. So, you know, this is the era of the behavioral revolution, right? And so from top to bottom, um, social scientists, liberal policymakers are increasingly uh, trying to seeing the behavioral sciences broadly defined as a way of understanding and making sense of social outcomes and devising social policy. And so the Ford Foundation, which is really at the cutting edge of this, really one of the at the leading edge of the behavioral revolution um, of the of the mid-century, picks up on this early work that's happening in cities like Cincinnati and Chicago and elsewhere to make sense of why are these uh, rural poor people so poor? Why are they not sort of finding their footing and getting ahead in, in mid-century mid urban society? And the Ford Foundation 
sees sort of big potential in the in the kind of behavioral diagnoses that have emerged out of these conversations. The Ford Foundation really likes what's being said about these poor white hillbilly ghettos because um, in the 50s and 60s, the Ford Foundation is besieged with um, criticisms from the right uh, who fear that its sort of social policy is going to... Um, disturb Southern race relations, right? And so the White Citizens Council throughout the South sort of threatens to boycott Ford automobiles if Ford Foundation programs, you know, are too liberal in their approach to, to reforming race relations in the South. And, and so Ford ends up sort of devising a set of programs and policies which really for, further foreground the hillbilly ghetto um, and and this, the problem of, of hillbilly poverty in the Midwestern city, almost as a kind of Trojan horse uh, for expanding its programmatic response to the urban crisis and, and sort of devising ideas about what cities might do to support rural poor people, rural poor migrants as they adjust to urban living. That sort of Ford Foundation bridge then leads into what the Johnson administration very directly picks up on and, and becomes foundational uh, to the, the urban-focused uh, war on poverty, which draws very heavily on the Ford Foundation experience and, and, and programmatic initiatives that emerged out of these conversations and that had put particular emphasis on the hillbilly ghetto and um, continued to foreground behavioralist conclusions about why poor people are poor and to deploy sort of behavioral solutions about how to get them to not be so poor anymore, um, rather than considering the more structural um, realities about large-scale economic transformations, which are the true driving forces, right, behind the post-war urban crisis and which um, remain you know, unaddressed uh, throughout this this period of time. Um, so you get the culture of poverty, um, this sort of liberal idea that ends up being sort of uh, deployed in very conservative ways um, and becomes increasingly focused on um, pathologizing uh, and punishing the behavior of the black poor by the end of the 20th century in, in important ways because of the role of the hillbilly ghetto um, and, and the kinds of uh, policy experiments and programmatic responses that it inspired, and I, you know, I, I, I try to detail that complex genealogy at some length in the book. I've given you a potted summary of it here, but I think it it suggests real, I think, profound ways of to reconsider, you know, how we think about the origins of, say, say the war on poverty, this mm -hmm. sort of most important um, social policy experiment of post-war liberalism. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean, as I was reading that, it came through as like this, this, this project of the 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 urban, the white urban poor. Yeah, it's like a testing grounds to test out this this argument of a pervasive culture of poverty that then gets deployed later to a broader scale um, in racialized ways, right? And so it 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 sets the groundwork for what will be post, you know, the second half of the twentieth century sort of cultures of poverty. I mean, you're reading this chapter too, and you can't help but read. I know you talked about it at the beginning, but like. This is hillbilly elegy like rhetoric in 1950s, right? Oh, totally. I mean, without a doubt, you know, all of the ways in which that book is um, so 
problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that really struck me the most as it came out and became such a sensation back when I was writing the dissertation version of this was how much it was like a, you know, all that is old is new again, a mm-hmm. complete return to this moment that I'm describing, um, pathologizing the sort of uh, Appalachian poor as, you know, this kind of, you know, this cultural stain that 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 explained the poverty of communities mm-hmm. like, you know, J.D. Vance's hometown of, of Middletown, Ohio, or whatever. Um, and it was, a, it was a real blast from the past, but also in really fascinating ways, a sort of coming full circle, I guess you would say, right? In the sense that, that in extraordinarily destructive ways, right, the culture of poverty becomes the ideological um, cudgel for, you know, the devastation of Black inner city communities with, you know, welfare state retrenchment, with the expansion of the war on crime um, over the final two thirds of the 20th century. Um, the, the, the true tragedy of the culture of poverty is the way it is, the way it becomes so exclusively racialized mm-hmm. um, after the moment that I'm writing about. But it's, I think, important to recognize or to appreciate how it originated in this other kind of context and with this other. Um, group of rural poor people, not in mind at the, and and not the black poor, but along with the black poor, in part to understand what it is people like J.D. Vance are doing when he returns to that argument, right? And rather than seeing it as some, you know, kind of truth telling, uh, you know, hard hitting, I'm going to call my people, I I can say that about my people because I am of them and I love them and blah, blah, all that, you know, sort of up from the bootstraps, ghetto, autobiography, BS, which has a long history in American letters. It's, yeah. it, it really is a, a return mm-hmm. to that very, um, yeah, to, 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 this, to, this, to the origins of the idea of the culture of poverty itself mm-hmm. in American politics in, in really important ways. But as you were talking, I couldn't help but think also about this culture of poverty. Um, you know, when I was... In the 40s and 50s, as India became free, there was also this, you know, um, pathologizing of indigenous people um, in India, right? Uh, and and there were these circuits of migration that were created, um, where people would go back every so often, you know, they'd work in the city, go back. And, um, and this, again, this pathologization was sort of happening. Um, and it's interesting now, like after reading a book, I was just thinking about how um, how in in some parts of India, for instance, rock and pop music are really popular because of these migratory patterns. But these are also communities that have been completely bankrupted, right? Because they're completely dependent on those economies, right? Mm-hmm. And and they're constantly pathologized as being backward and needing more help from the state. And the only way the state can help is by creating big infrastructure and obviously not listening to these very people, right? And and then there's like a long history of boarding schools and all of that, you know. So there's all of that fun stuff as well. Um, but yeah, it's interesting to me that in sort mm. of in the post-war period, whether it's depending on which post-colony you're looking at, there are these resonances of this culture of poverty, right? I think it's totally germane, right? Because part of what I'm describing and what you're describing, Ramya, is the sort of global ubiquity of modernization theory as a way of driving state policy. And I think we're used to thinking about it 
you know, in the global South, we're used to thinking about it as a sort of organ of American soft imperialism. But I think what's interesting here is to think about the way it was also guiding the way um, liberal policymakers thought the white poor, right? And and in a way that that reminds us, I think, that that what needed to be modernized was not only racial traits, right? Not only indigenous traits, though they it was that also profoundly, right? But but the kind of um, class traits associated with the rural backwards, you know, provincial, right? And that notion of backwardness of, I mean, literally the language of primitivism explicitly using that terminology is is ubiquitous throughout this this contemporary discourse, which again is sort of sympathetic, right? It's 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 both pathologizing and degrading, and 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 of course deeply antagonistic to those cultures, but sort of wants them to you know leave behind their pre-modern ways and and join the 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 progress of humanity. And I think it it it's again it's not to make some it's to you know, in adding the white poor and the white rural poor uh, to that sort of conversation, what new insights does it add about, you know, the sort of ideological uh, mindset of, of, of global mid-century liberalism? I think it's, I mean, that's not what my book is about, but I love your ability to connect it there, Ramya, because I think it, it's directly germane. And I hope that readers who are going to be might find their way to the book with other kinds of projects in mind, but would recognize a kind of consonance there in the, in the way you have. I think it's really illuminating to think about it that way. It's, it's clear you're a bit of a music buff here. Um, but, you know, I, I, was, I was actually really fascinated in this, this um, chapter because I had to go down a rabbit hole of listening to all of these songs that I've not listened to ever before. But um, <laughs> you sort of track, right, like how aspects of this, this migratory white working class uh, particular cultural objects and tones, or and particularly music, right, get repackaged into like quasi-conservative forms, right, through the mainstreamification of country music, right, like this transformation from what is called hillbilly music colloquially into like popular country music in the post-war decades through this process of you know creating the the Nashville sound, right. Mm-hmm. Um, I also was compelled to how much of this music both features like the highway as either in the title or just like the central theme of these songs, right? Um, over the course of the 20th century, how does this transformation, right, of this like earlier form that is focused on sort of the hardship of this this working class life that gets appropriated a little bit during mid-century into the 20th century, you know, I'm, I'm wondering if you could tell us like what that means, what are its broader implications for like American politics and culture in the post-war decades? Yeah, I mean, I think the story of country music is in many ways um, central to the story I'm telling and not least because I like country music or I, I, I liked it more and more as I dove deeper and deeper into this project. And I like writing about, about music and, and culture while I think about labor and working class history. Um, and so, you know, and my book is named after both a, a regional colloquialism and a particular country music song, which uh, if you haven't, if you're not familiar with Steve Earle's Hillbilly Highway off of his debut album, uh, you should listen to it because it does a particularly good job of capturing, I think, that uh, and evoking that liminal space between mobility and marginalization that I was speaking about before. I think it's maybe one of the better 
expressions of that. Granddaddy was a miner, but he finally saw the light. He didn't have much, just a beat up truck and a dream about a better life. Grandmama cried when she whipped by, you never heard such a lonesome sound. Pretty soon the dirt road turned into blacktop Detroit City bound. Found that hill belly highway. On that hill belly highway. But you know, country music is is central to this story. On the one hand, on on its own terms, country music goes national and becomes is no longer a kind of regional musical genre largely associated with the sort of white sort of rural working classes of the southeast not exclusively uh, you know but largely and becomes this major terrain of mass culture and and of sort of mainstream middlebrow mass culture by the middle of the 20th century in, in part because so many millions of white southerners leave the South and go to the Midwest and go and Southerners leave the Southern Plains and go to California uh, and bring country and Western music to places like Bakersfield, California, right, which becomes a, a, another epicenter of country music recording during these years. And, um, and so as the, the sort of listening base of country music moves outside of the region in, in huge numbers, um, it creates a, an audience uh, for country music where it had not really existed before, right? Or where it had, um, where country music had not made inroads into urban listening markets dominated by ethnic immigrant musics of various kinds and sort of Tin Pan Alley pop music uh, of the of the first half of the 20th century. But by the 50s and 60s in Chicago, in Detroit, and you know, you're getting the first uh, country music radio stations in part to cater to this growing demographic shift. Importantly, country music is tied up with the kind of patholo- pathologizing we were just talking about. You know, as Southern whites settle in Chicago and Detroit and uh, other kinds of places throughout the region, among the first things that sprout up alongside them and especially and become particularly visible landmarks in these hillbilly ghettos are um, honky tonks, right? Our mm. southern bars and music venues, which are sites of recreation and, and communal, you know, leisure that are venues for the you know, people listening to and playing the music from home, right? Which makes sense. But also uh, in the eyes of those same sort of uh, urban officials and, and journalists and everybody's wringing their hands about how the hillbilly ghetto signals the demise of the inner city and, and the sort of, you know, the primitive peoples taking over. This primitive uh, yodeling, screeching, you know, string band music coming out of the uh, out of the southern bar in Uptown, sort of embodies that the sort of cultural threat most clearly. And so, you know, one of the the markers of the hillbilly ghetto is the the physical infrastructural mm-hmm. expression of of hill of country music, mm-hmm. and and you know, uh, municipal governments, police departments as they start 
profiling Southern whites in these hillbilly ghettos as, as vectors of crime and vice uh, corrupting the inner city, target country music bars as places to, you know, send in the cops to break up, you know, gatherings and arrest people and bust heads and, you know, do all of the, the landscape of country music in that way becomes a sort of on the, is on the front lines of this cultural conflict that I'm trying to write about. And then in ways that I, that, you know, uh, I try to listen to and, and sort of Walk, walk my reader through a, to listen with me to is the way in which the music itself stylistically mm-hmm. um, and ideologically is transformed, I think, over these years as it leaves its sort of, or its origins, you might say, as a music of the kind of, of everyday life of the white working poor of the rural Southern countryside and um, moves into the mainstream of sort of middle-class urban society and begins to articulate different kinds of themes and attitudes, loses some of its earlier sort of critical valences, I think, which are, are present in it um, uh, in different kinds of ways um, in the 20s and 30s and, and become less so over time as, as the music goes mainstream. To return to the theme of the highway, I sort of track that particularly with the way the highway as a symbol comes to be repurposed over the course of these years. You know, there's a country music song from the 30s uh, called I Didn't Hear Nobody Pray uh, by a guy named Dorsey Dixon. And he and his brother, the performer of the name Dixon Brothers, and and they were um, Carolina mill workers um, who um, also sort of had a, you know, modestly successful career as recording artists. and they, they write this song in, in the late 30s called I Didn't Hear Nobody Pray, which Ray, Roy Acuff, a ma- major figure in mid-century country, would um, re-record and re-release as Wreck on the Highway, one of the major sort of first kind of con- early country music hits of the mid-40s that tells a story of economic corruption and moral decline through the lens of the highway as a kind of expression of the industrializing, modernizing Southern mill community. The Dixon brothers were sort of, you know, they were fundamentalist Christians. There's a kind of high moralism to their description of immorality and drink and sex and these kinds of things. But in essence, what they're describing is the way in which the immoral economy of Southern industrialization transformed the uh, sort of rural landscape um, and created these highways which become scenes of death and destruction. And I argue that the highway there becomes this kind of metaphor for the penetration uh, of capitalism into the sort of, you know, moral economy of the of the non-capitalist world in some way. And by the later part of the Hillbilly Highway, I think what you more often hear is the highway used in very nostalgic ways or figuring in country music in very nostalgic ways, not to critique um, a kind of economic arrangement or, 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 or sort of transformed social and cultural mode of production or mode of life, but as a kind of vehicle for longing for some simple, you know, kind of fantastical, simple life, um, which, uh, you know, returns to the rural South along the highway become a kind of repeated 
metaphor for, I'm thinking of the music of people like Bobby Bear, um, you know, whose song Detroit City and 500 Miles to Baltimore and others were very popular during these years. And I want to go home. I want to go And I dreamed about those cotton fields and home. You know, seemed to capture this increasingly nostalgic and, and I would argue kind of conservative um, language in country music, which I think becomes more powerful as the decades go on, as that music again becomes more mainstream, more um, delinked from its origins as a kind of working class music. Um, I'm curious as someone who's thinking about country music and its politics, uh, you know, we are a, a few months out from two major uh, news stories related to country music. That is Jason Aldean's um, Try That in a Small Town, as well as of course, um, of course. Uh, the Richmond from North Richmond. I'm curious how those um, songs play into this conversation of, of country music and the, and the politics that they, that they um, embody. Yeah, well, it's interesting. It's interesting, I guess, maybe to think of Richmond, north of Richmond, um, alongside that Jason Aldean song about, you know, try, try doing that in a small town, a, a kind of uh, a cultural flashpoint in its, in its own right, although maybe surpassed in, in scope and scale by the Richmond, north of Richmond song. I think, I mean, obviously, you know, the one reality of the Richmond North of Richmond song is the way in which white economic grievance um, articulates itself in these, um, in, in the language of ethno-nationalism that right-wing populists have made such hay with, right? In, mm -hmm. in taking the feelings of marginalization and um, material grievance uh, and providing the, the, you know, comfort of, you know, punching downwards at poor, poor people of color and, and making a politics of it. And so I think you could really obviously hear that in that song as, as much of the commentary about it pointed out at, at the same time, you know, that the, the, it's, it's clear also in that song that there are real experiences of, mm -hmm economic immiseration and powerlessness that are, you know, finding expression in that, um, if not the, you know, ugly language about, you know, welfare queens, then certainly in the um, repudiation of the rich men themselves, right, the political elites mm -hmm. of, of, you know, whatever, you know, vague... <laughs> position in the super, you know, in the structure, they, they find themselves have, you know, inarguably, right, neglected mm -hmm. the, the, the economic well-being of the rural poor, um, you know, south of Richmond, you know, so, so I think that, right, that, that song, I think, perfectly captures the way what, what are real economic grievances, right? What are real feelings of political powerlessness within, you know, white working poor and working classes of the South and the Midwest have been effectively connected to right-wing racial discourse and serve the interests of 
Trump and 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 his predecessors in in the Republican right um, over the course of decades, and and explain the rightward shift ideologically and in, and in political behavior of that portion of the population. On the other hand, you know, I do think um, the Jason Aldean song mm-hmm. is much more emblematic of the conventions of post-war country music in its sort of fanciful nostalgic attachments to, you know, oh, uh, the, the true Americanism, right? Which is a kind of, there's no economics in that category, right? It's about culture. It's about nation. It's about nationalism. It's about a kind of, uh, you know, declassed cultural identity. Um, all I hear in that is, is racism and reaction, right? And, and the kind of pablum and, and self-soothing kind of conservative language of, of the rural, which the right has also mobilized to great effect, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but which seems to efface or disguise, downplay, obscure the kind of the critical economic and, and political discourse that I do I do think is present in that Rich Men of Richmond song, even if it's it's you know sort of not the dominant theme, and even if it's not the you know the most important thing to take away from it or, or whatever it might be. But yeah. you know, the Jason Aldean song reminds me of a song I write about in the book by. Um, you know, Hank Williams Jr., A Country Boy Can Survive, which is this sort of like real violent fantasy of like rural sort of militarized sovereignty standing against the city as this space of urban, mm-hmm. you know, of corruption and 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 sin and, and immorality and, and uh, this kind of, um, you know, the, the sort of like, we'll show you if you come to the country what we're going to, what we think of you. And I heard that in the Jason Aldean song, um, you know, in, in ways that were, you know, reminiscent of that conservative discourse as it became increasingly powerful in country music over these years. Yeah. I mean, the anti-urban, I mean, the Hank Williams Jr. component of the, of your story as well. I mean, like with the photo of him, he's campaigning for George Wallace, right? I mean, this is like explicit in his politics. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, 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 I try, I, I, I single out the Williams family in my yeah. as a sort of, you know, a kind of hinge point along which this sort of transformation in hillbillies, uh, country music's transition from hillbilly marginality to country music mainstream and from a kind of critical working class music to a more, you know, conservative mass cultural phenomenon. Um, for better or worse, I say you can see it all through the lineage of the Williamses. I don't, maybe I'm picking on them unnecessarily. I love Hank Williams Sr. I'm not a big fan of Hank Williams Jr., but you know, whatever, you, you know, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta go after your, you gotta go after your sacred cows like Hank Williams if you really want people to pay attention. <laughs> Um, so as we, you know, close out this discussion, I was wondering if we can pull back a bit and discuss what listeners of the pod should be thinking about with your work, um, and they should go buy your book anyway. Um, so how does recovering the history, this particular history especially, shift our understanding of mid-century America and the Midwest? And, you know, what should uh, listeners be taking away from the text? We have a tendency, and when I say we, maybe I, I mean more, you know, in, in labor history and maybe even more than in labor history than in sort of popular political conversations about um, the white working class to homogenize um, that social group. Um, there is a separate problem often addressed and critiqued about talking about the working class and 
leaving out all non-white members of that working class, despite their disproportionate numerical representation within the working class. And, and that problem of saying the working class and just meaning white working people mm-hmm. is, a, is another problem, uh, but a problem. But we also tend to do this thing of talking about the white working class and treating that, not, in, not troubling that homogenizing modifier in a way that I think is misleading, right? Because um, when we tell the history of the white working class broadly defined in the mid 20th century, what we're often describing, right, is a period of rising working class abundance, of a kind of embourgeoisement of the white working class as it left behind its class markings and became more culturally, economically, and ideologically embedded in a kind of middle class, right? It's in that period of time that the Mm -hmm. middle class emerges as this sort of dominant paradigm of average Americanness that we, you know, no one, no one identifies as working class anymore. They all identify as middle class or whatever is the mm-hmm. sort of outgrowth of this. Um, as I said at the outset, that narrative of mobility is part of the story that I'm telling, but it's only a part of it, right? And that, and what distinguishes this segment of the white working class from that dominant overarching narrative are the ways in which these experiences of precarity uh, continue mm-hmm. to really define the, 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 the life experience, the working experiences, the cultural uh, experiences, uh, and, and political you know, implications of this, this migrant working class, this migrant white working class. Their very mobility, their sort of constant life on the road, right? Really, you know, it, it distinguishes that group, this group. One takeaway, right, is that um, it is a, it is just as it is misleading to think of the white of the working class as exclusively white. It is misleading to think of um, the white working class as a singular entity and mistake mm-hmm. the way very particular kinds of material social experiences dictated a whole different set of class behaviors, attitudes, identities um, in this particular case. When we actually appreciate how significant this demographic group was, it's not some minor subset of the white working class of this part of the country, but but a rather sizable one that is in some Mm -hmm. way or another experiencing for whom this sort of precarious marginality, but for whom this sort of halfway in, halfway out status of belonging but not belonging is critically defining of their experience throughout a period of time in which we are not used to talking about that. Mm -hmm. Building off of that, another takeaway that's, I think, really important here is the way in which that experience manifested itself in American politics is that it gives us a deeper history for what would be an ever-widening class and cultural divide between the dominant forces, increasingly dominant forces within mainstream liberalism by the end of the 20th century and its sort of white working class base historically, uh, which it is moving ever further away from in part because of these tensions along lines of class and culture, which I think my book tries to emphasize are sort of deeply embedded in the region and in the experience of this group of workers. And so as the economy 
in decades that really unfold after the main focus of my book of the Midwest and the Upper South deindustrializes mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um, as the national economy moves in a kind of post-Fordist, post-industrial direction, largely driven by liberal or neoliberal policy programs, which advantage urban areas at the expense of non-urban areas, which focus on high skill, high knowledge economies at the expense of blue collar economies, that distinct, that, that neglect, <laughs> right, that that reflects for the, the left behind working cl- industrial working classes um, builds on a deep foundation of kind of alien is alienation and marginalization separating sort of this population of the white working class and then, you know, sort of middle-class liberals. Um, and I think it, you know, is one way of understanding the roots of say the modern democratic parties, white working class problem, it's inability to, you know, uh, prize those voters away from white right wing demagogues like Trump with a plausible economic agenda that, you know, is, attuned to the kinds of grievances and kinds of feelings of political powerlessness that recognizes that the sort of the direction of economic policy over the last 50 years has been um, one which has created real material, you know, dislocations for this portion of the population and, um, uh, and figures out ways to address it through taking their economic grievances seriously and, and winning that to a multiracial progressive vision for, um, you know, a different kind of economy and things like that. So I think there's a sort of, I guess, a political takeaway that I think, I hope the book translates, you know, that, that is about the way this, this deep history says something about the politics of our moment that, um, that we're not used to sort of thinking about in those terms. And I know that this book was just published. So, um, but I'm curious, you know, what are you working on? Um, you know, what else are you working on? Any future projects in the works? Yeah. Well, I'm thinking that I'm, I'm at the very beginning stages of, of the next project. And I, and I think it does, you know, in, in many ways, and, and maybe it's, it'll be clear from where we just left off, sort of emerge out of um, what I've been just saying. But, um, you know, if my book, if the Hillbilly Highway kind of lets off just, at the early stages of deindustrialization, right? And at the early moments of this sort of major economic restructuring, which will bring the Hillbilly Highway to an end, right? Because after 1970, people increase, are less likely to move to the Midwest, right? To search for work because jobs are leaving the Midwest for places like the South and other low wage, non-union parts of the country. And so this, the main direction, the main trajectory of this major migration really comes to an end as a result of this tectonic shift in the, in the national economy. Um, and one thing that becomes increasingly accentuated in the decades afterwards is this sort of new rural-urban partisan divide in American life and in American politics. And, you know, the relationship between that economic division and the politics and policies of neoliberalism is a kind of historical narrative that I don't think has been written yet or, or written 
enough yet. And I'd like to think about the ways in which these sort of regional economic imbalances between rural economies and urban areas reassert themselves in really powerful ways in the years after my book ends, um, after the you know beginning of the 1980s, as this um, divide between the rising professional classes that dominate the policy agenda of democratic liberalism uh, mm-hmm. and this increasingly economically marginal industrial base um, grows wider, how that creates the, the sort of division between rural and urban political and economic communities, how it makes rurality an increasingly powerful symbol and, and political device or, or ideological device in American politics and the way that we've been talking about with the music and, and otherwise, mm-hmm. and how, how that economic restructuring sort of drives this um, intensive polarization in American politics. And, and I guess I would say in class politics really profoundly um, uh, during the, the final decades of the 20th century. Well, great. Well, Max, thank you so much for sharing your time with us. This is a great conversation. Oh, thank you. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry for rambling on, but I really, I really enjoyed it. So. <laughs> yes. Thank you.